here, I'd like to start again with some morning declarations. I choose to see myself as Christ sees me. I am his masterpiece. Christ in me is stronger than the wrong desires in me. I have an abundance mindset. I live open-handed, giving generously because my God is an abundant God. The world will be different and better because I serve Jesus today. Now, uh, we're going into episode two of the Upside Down. Um, And so great news. I always like to start with some good news. Today we're going to talk about one of your favorite subjects, temptation. You're welcome. (laughs) So... So when I was thinking about this, about temptation, I think that we probably have some things in common. Maybe not, but probably yes. So if this is true for you, just, well, think about, is this true for you? All temptation is an invitation to embrace self-interest. When I'm tempted to do something, it is always, at least from my perspective, something that is going to be beneficial to me or something that I believe will be beneficial to me. But it's certainly all about me. I've never been tempted to be selfless. I don't struggle with the temptation to be overly generous. When I have an inclination to think, maybe I'll give up my Saturday and go help them move, or, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do what I have to do so that I can go and help them do that thing that they have to do or uh, to write a check for an organization that's in need. Whenever I find an inclination to be selfless, I don't consider that to be a temptation. Do you? Do you know what we consider that? Am I a great person or what? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Now, hopefully you can continue to identify with me and think of these things in the same way. Otherwise, this is just going to be some, uh, just some more confession. Uh, I tend to be more successful at overcoming the temptation to selflessness than the temptations to be selfish. Is that just me? And then I've learned, and maybe you've learned the same thing. Maybe you're in the middle of learning it right now, and maybe that's why you're here, or maybe that's why you're watching or you're listening. We've learned that over time in our pursuit of selfish self-interest that we eventually hurt ourselves. And oftentimes we hurt others. And then Jesus comes along and and, and he says this. It's like he understands the whole thing. If you live a self-centered life, if you make your life all about you, all about self, in the end, you don't just hurt yourself. In the end, you lose yourself. For the next few weeks, uh, we are following Jesus. We started at Christmas, and then we, started, we went to his baptism. But from the, from the time that he was introduced to the world as an adult up until the time that he sacrificed his life for the world. And through the series, we're going to come um, back to this theme that Jesus showed up to introduce something brand new. Jesus came to introduce a new covenant, a brand new arrangement between God and humanity, A new covenant that would replace the old covenant between God and a nation. He came to introduce a brand new command 
one simple governing command that would be the governing ethic, the driving ethic for his brand new movement, which is called the church. So from the beginning, uh, from Jesus' beginning, those who paid attention and those who had fortunes who were tied to the old ways, to them it was very, very clear that Jesus did not come to continue something, to create uh, Judaism 2.0, to simply cre- uh, to complete that big religious book. They understood that Jesus came to do something, to introduce something, to offer something that was brand new. It was not like it used to be. And so they resisted. And that is the resistance that pops up throughout the Gospels as we hear these stories. So now, previously on the Upside Down, we were introduced to the guy uh, who introduced Jesus. And his name was John the... Baptist. Very well done. John drew an extraordinarily large crowd, and then with that crowd, he drew their attention to Jesus. And if you remember last episode, you remember that John's introduction of Jesus to John's big crowd, you remember what he did there? John had the the big crowd that was uh, by the Jordan River, and one day Jesus shows up, and he comes down to the banks, and John says, may I have your attention, please? Look right? Physical. He's right there. This is not a concept. This is not a theory. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's coming to do something for the entire world. And then Jesus makes his way down. He actually gets down into the Jordan River with John, and he insists that John baptizes him. John the Baptist should baptize him. He wants the name brand baptism. This is so backwards though. It's so upside down because John is embarrassed now. He just told his whole audience how great Jesus is and how he's not even worthy to be his servant. And now Jesus is in the water standing right with him and insisting that John baptize him. And that's kind of a symbol of Jesus putting himself under John's authority. And it's so upside down and John doesn't know what to do with it. Matthew describes it like this. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? This is upside down. And this was one of the first clues of the upside down nature of the new that Jesus came introducing to the world. So here's a fascinating twist in the plot. Jesus is now a public figure, right? John says, look, Lamb of God but he hasn't done anything. He hasn't amazed anybody. He's just another guy in the crowd. There's this little conversation in the water, and then Jesus is baptized. And then instead of, you know, kind of stepping up from that front and center and saying, hey, thanks, John. Great job on the baptism. You can now go back behind the curtain. I'm going to take it from here. Instead of doing that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their gospels, they all say that immediately Jesus left disappeared by himself into the wilderness. They say that God actually sent him into the wilderness. But there's more than just like a camping trip and an alone time for Jesus. Here's what Matthew says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the diablos. That's where we get our word diabolical, the slanderer 
the accuser. In our English Bible, it says the devil. Now, this is an interesting little piece of narrative. Um, And if you grew up in church, you're like, oh, I already know where this thing is going. I know how this thing, uh, this whole thing turns out. But I want to ask you just, just hang on a second, okay? And if you didn't grow up in church, you're not sure about how you feel about Jesus, and then all of a sudden you think that we want you to start believing in the devil, but you don't believe in the devil, and you say, there's no such thing as the devil. Just hold on, okay? Before you check out, just hold on for a second. So both groups, just hang on for a second, because more than anything else, what I want you to do is understand why this little interesting bit of narrative is in the New Testament. Whenever you read anything in ancient literature, but especially in the Bible, because let's be honest, you don't read any other ancient literature. (laughs) For the most part, okay? And for the most part, most people don't even read the Bible. But when you read, uh, when you run across something in ancient literature, you should always ask the question, why did the author choose to include this? The reason that's a big deal in ancient literature, and it's not such a big deal now, is because in ancient, in ancient times, there wasn't much ancient literature. And anything that was written took on a remarkable authority. And even in our culture, if you're having a conversation with someone and you're, you're arguing about something, it's going back and forth, and one of the people says, well, I read an article, right? As soon as they say, I read an article, the fact that somebody actually wrote something gives it just a little bit more credibility. And if you found out who the author is, well, that uh, kind of raises the credibility even more. Well, in ancient times, when virtually no one could read and even fewer people could write, illiteracy was at over 90% of the population. Anything that was written had extraordinary authority. It was expensive to write anything down. So you have to ask yourself, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they could have written anything they wanted about Jesus. Why did they include this? Why is this story in each of their Gospels? Why was this so important? As strange as it is, as odd as it is, and as many questions as it makes you ask, as many questions as it made them ask, why in the world would they include this little bit of narrative? And the answer is, it's not a lesson on how to overcome temptations. Although there are certainly some very helpful takeaways on how to handle temptation, but it's way bigger than that. It's way more epic than that. What happens next is central to the story of Jesus going forward, because Jesus in these moments, and as we're going to discover later, Jesus throughout his life was tempted to opt for the old ways instead of the new ways that he had come to introduce. So the old way of being, what, it's what we're all really uh, familiar with. We know how to do it. It's the me first way. It's the kingdom of the world way. Luke lets us know that this is an, a, a recurring temptation throughout Jesus' life. And so here's how it went down. Okay, let's start with verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This might just be the most obvious statement in the entire New Testament, right? But they include it just so that we didn't miss that little detail. 
But we now know to ask all ancient literature a question. Why did you include this? Here's why. Because the writers wanted the readers in the first century especially to know Jesus was human. He was a person. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He was human. And so he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry, and he was weak, and he was vulnerable. And it's as if he was saying at that time to the tempter, come on, give me your best shot. I want you to know how serious I am about the new that I have come to introduce to the world. Verse 3, the tempter came to him, and now it's a new Greek word here, parazzo, the inquisitor, uh, the tester, the prodder, the poker, the one who is supposed to get out of him what no one else can get out of him. And said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Just speak it, right? If you are the son of God, it will be done. That's the way God works, right? Just spoke the whole universe into being. It's a much, much more high-quality version of Alexa or OK Google. The, uh, hey, Siri, turn these stones into bread. He goes, it, it can't really be that hard. I mean, look at those stones. I mean, just, just look at them. They even already kind of look like bread. All you got to do is animate them a little bit. You're entitled, Jesus, right? You're you. You're the big guy. You're Jesus, even mortal kings, if they had this power, they would do that. But you're supposed to be more. If, if they had the power, they would use it. Why wouldn't you? And Jesus responds to the first temptation by leaning into that old covenant, going back and remembering that, the covenant between God and Israel. Because even when, uh, even though he had come to establish a new covenant, his life is sort of the hinge point, uh, the door from one to the other. He still functions under the laws of the old covenant so that he might fulfill it. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And here he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where it takes us back in time to the, the nation of Israel uh, traveling through the wilderness. And they've got nothing to eat. And God promises, and God provides manna from heaven. And in those years, God was teaching his people to depend on him every single day. Daily dependence. Daily dependence. And Jesus finishes it off. He says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, and even though I am the son of God, even though I have been sent into the world to do something new for the world, I will not act on my own. I will not act independently of my father. Because to do so is so kingdoms of this world. And then the devil took him to the holy city. And I don't think this is like a Star Trek moment, okay? I don't think that they were beamed sort of from place to place. I think when we, when we hear this story, if you've done this before, this is what I think. Um, we, we start blending the idea of the three temptations in the wilderness kind of with the three ghosts in the Christmas carol and magical stuff happens all the time. I think they just walked there. Uh, no magic required, and apparently Jesus, an evil incarnate, evil personified, spent some time together. Luke says, brought him. So they, they walked from the wilderness to Jerusalem, and then in Jerusalem 
to the temple and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, again, when I go back to my childhood, I remember getting a picture here. And the picture that I got was a scene from King Kong. Uh, King Kong sort of hanging on the top of the Empire State Building, right? Holding on to the antenna or the spire, or in this case, in the temple. But I think what happened here is way less cinematic. They just walked to the highest point on the wall of the, t- of the temple. It's the southeast corner, and it overlooks the valley, and hundreds and hundreds of feet down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. How high, you ask? How high, you ask? Well, I am so glad that you asked. Josephus, right? He's a Jewish uh, first century historian. He works for the Romans, and he wrote about this. He said, when you stand on the southeast corner and you look down long enough that you would get dizzy and you'd have to step back because it was honestly, in the actual meaning of these words, overwhelmingly spectacular. And if you stayed, you might topple off. And then the tempter, the devil, he says this to him. He says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. People would notice that, right? You jump off this, you get up, you kind of brush the dust off the robes. Come on, you're going to get likes. You're going to get shares. People are going to know who you are. You will build your following. This is really going to speed up the timeline of what it is that you are here to do anyway, right? For it is written, now the tempter quotes the Old Testament also to can play at that game. And here's one of the really big problems that we get into, the temptations with the magic book mentality. Bible says it, now you got to do it, right? And so the devil, the tempter, quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that your foot, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He taunts Jesus. Well, didn't God promise to take care of you? Right? Well, don't you have faith in God? Come on, Jesus. Don't just say that you believe it. Don't just say that you live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Show me that. Show me your faith. Surely you can believe that God is going to take care of you. Right here. Right now is... He's tempting Jesus to do what oftentimes we are tempted to do. He was tempting Jesus to use God, to presume upon God. And that, unfortunately, is a modern version of faith. The faith that some of you were brought up with. The faith that some of you have chosen to leave. The faith that some of you should leave. The faith that, 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 that is the reason that you haven't been back to church in a long time. The faith that says, if you just believe, you receive. If you just believe, you receive. If you believe enough, if you quote verses enough, if you have enough people quote the same verse and believe enough together that God, then God has to do. He has to come through for you. God has to do what you say he has to do. If you quote a verse from the Bible, that, then God has to do that, right? He has to do what you say he has to do. And Jesus answered him. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here he quotes Moses. 
when Moses was leading the nation of Israel on their way to the promised land and the nation was saying, God has to do such and such for us and God owes it to us. We are his special people and this is something that God just has to do for us. And Moses says, no, I don't, I don't think you understand. You are God's chosen people. But God doesn't have to do anything. You do not manipulate. You cannot manipulate your God. The point for us is simply this. If you are a Christian and, okay, this might be disturbing. This might be offensive. So just warning you. The moment that you begin trying to manipulate God, the moment that you begin looking for a secret formula, if I do these three things consistently, God has to do something for me, is the moment that you are no longer practicing Christianity. In that moment, you are practicing magic. Your religion has become superstition. Your religion has become the pagan superstitions that Jesus came into this world to replace. Not simply for a nation, but for all nations and for all people. Your religion has become so very kingdoms of this world. And here's why I say that. And later, uh, we're going to get to this, okay? But later, Jesus would, uh, he would say to those, those people that he had gathered, when you think of God, okay, God is not a king in heaven who can be bribed or manipulated, paid off. God is not a king in heaven with his, with his arms crossed, waiting for you to bring enough gifts and enough sacrifices and enough offerings, enough good deeds, enough charity, enough prayers, enough perfect weeks in your YouVersion Bible app to get his attention. When you think of God from now on, think of him as a perfect heavenly father who already knows everything that you need. He does not need to be talked into anything. He does not need to be bribed. He cannot be bribed. You come as children who simply ask. Now, these are the first two temptations. Jesus got through those and he passed. Now we come to the third. And I think that the third is the one that this is really all about. Okay, I think it was building up to this one. This the third, but not the final temptation. This will be a list of three that is repeated over and over again throughout his ministry and throughout your life as well. Now we get to the main event. But just before we get to that, uh, here's a question that I would like to ask you. Why are powerful people so inclined to go off the rails? Why is that? Morally, ethically, financially. Why is that? You would think that the more power a person had, the better that that person would be. That they would have lower um, uh, financial pressure. Nobody's telling them what to do. They've got, they've got more freedom. You'd think that more freedom, more autonomy, and more wealth, the more that a person had, they would just become a better and better and better person. In fact, I just bet that you think that if you had more power and you had more influence and you had more wealth, that you would be a better person. Don't you think so? Why is it that powerful people 
oftentimes go off the rails? Why is it that the inclination is that now that I've got the power, now that I've got the influence, now that I've got the wealth, I'm going to leverage it for my benefit? Where does that come from? Why isn't it the opposite? Why do powerful people so frequently make it all about themselves? I know that you're thinking of illustrations in your head right now. Then along the same line, where does bullying come from? I'm powerful. I'm bigger than you. Where does that sense of entitlement that, that leads to sexual harassment? Because I have the power? Because I'm stronger? Because I have more influence? Because I can control your future? Because I can control the opportunities that you can get and the ones that you can't get? Where does that come from? Arrogance. Dismissiveness. Whatever. You're just the little people. Elitism. Extravagant consumerism. And they think that they're so generous because they look at the dollar amount. They look at the zeros on the, on the donation, but they don't look at the percentage. Remember we looked at this stuff? A couple of months back, we did a series called Weird Like Us. We talked about this. Where does that come from? Greed. And I bet you think kind of like I think. That if I had that much influence, that if I had that much power, I would just be the best person. I would be a better person. Why is it that it doesn't make people better? It tends to make people worse. Why is it that power corrupts? Why is it that there are just so few stories that you can pull out of the air where wealthy people, powerful people, actually end up well? The insight here is just profound, and this is why I think that you should follow Jesus. It, it, you don't even have to believe that he's the Son of God to start following him, but you should follow Jesus throughout his ministry because this is where we're going to watch that through his life, we are going to watch... Um, and we're going to look for this kind of stuff. We're going to see it throughout his time on earth. Jesus taught and he modeled and he taught and he modeled something that is so um, not new to us. But it was new in the first century. No one had ever seen this thing done on a grand scale. He taught and modeled. Power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. No one in that time had ever heard such a thing. That's just not the way the world works, right? That's not how you get anything done. Jesus, let me help you out here. If you're going to start a movement, if you're going to move the needle at all here, if somehow you are going to change what's happening, if somehow you are going to get the Jewish people back on track with the will of God so that God can do something magnificent, this isn't going to work. This is upside down. And he taught that wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. Jesus consistently taught again and again and again that wealth is a stewardship. That, that, that it all belongs to my Father in heaven. And that wealth, just like power, is a test. It's a test to see how well you will do. And how well you do is not judged on how you spend it on yourself. It's how generous you become. If you can be trusted with more later, 
And very few people pass the wealth test. Very few people. Now, now, now when I know, when I say that, your eyes perk up a little bit, right? You think, well, I'd at least like to sign up for the test, right? <laughs> I mean, is that an online sign up? Maybe that's one of those Facebook quizzes that I go by. I think I could probably pass it, right? I think I'd at least like to try and take the test, put my, throw my, ring in, my hat into the ring, right? And the truth is, if you're listening to me, if you're watching me, you're already taking that test. 90% of the world would consider you to be wealthy. But I bet you do what, what I do. Well, I'm like in the middle, Right? There's even more middle above me, and there's definitely a whole wealthy position above that, right? Always the space above. Everyone's got a space above. I'm not in the super rich. I'm not like a mega yacht kind of person. Those are the people Jesus is talking to, right? Those are the people who need to get straightened out. And Jesus will say throughout his ministry, wait, wait, wait. What's in your hand? Who do you think that's for? Well, Jesus, hold on here just a second. Back this up a little bit. I earned it. I deserve it. And Jesus is teaching consistently. That's so kingdoms of this world. That's the way the world has always been. But I've come to introduce something new. And this is an epic battle. I know that it doesn't sound so epic on first sound on first glance. Right. Uh, it comes up again and again. But this is why the story begins here. And throughout his ministry, he would be tempted right up until his very last night before his crucifixion. Throughout his life, he would be tempted to go all kingdoms of the earth and to take what was rightfully his and to leverage what he could leverage himself for himself. So that's why I think that this third temptation is kind of the whole point of the interaction. We jump to verse 8. Again, the devil took him. And again, I think we're just walking there again. No teleporting. I don't know how all this works, okay? I can't explain everything to you. But they, they go to a very high mountain and, and, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I think this might have just been like a mountain that was just north of Jerusalem um, at night. And they could sit on the high mountain and they could see the whole city lit up at night in all of its splendor. And about 16 miles away, there is Jericho. It's lit up at night. This is the very center of the presence of God in the lives of Jewish people. This was the group that was waiting for God to do something in the world for their nation. So, looky here, Jesus. Feast your eyes on all of this. I know this is why you're here. Verse 9, all this I will give you, he said. Luke describes it just a little bit differently. He says, I will give you all of their authority and their splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone else. This is what you came for, Jesus. This is what, this is what your job is. Isn't this what you want? Isn't this what we all want? Isn't this what you want to be recognized? To get your fair share? to have just a little bit more power, to have a little bit more wealth, a little bit more influence. And imagine if someone offered you the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is 
bow down and worship me. All you have to do is recognize that it's mine to give. Not even for the rest of your life, just, just right now, just for this moment. When, right now, you can just recognize that it's mine to give. I want you to leverage your worship for your sake. After all, it's what you came for. We both know it's all yours anyways, right? Jesus, this is what you're entitled to. And seriously, who refuses what they're entitled to? Who refuses what they deserve? I'll tell you who does that. The people that you have the most respect for. Great people. Jesus had not come to barter for a kingdom. Jesus had come to establish a kingdom in the hearts of men and in women. A kingdom of conscience. A kingdom that said wealth is not just for the wealthy. Power is not just for the powerful. And influence isn't to be leveraged for those who have all the influence. A kingdom like no other. An upside down kingdom. A kingdom where the subjects were not uh, under the whim of their selfish rulers. A kingdom where the subjects weren't required to lay down their lives for the king. A kingdom where the king lays down his life for his subjects. This had never happened. No one had ever seen such a thing. And anyone on the outside watching would have said, it just doesn't work that way. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then Luke finishes with this section. He says, When the devil had finished all uh, all this tempting, he left him for an opportune time. See you soon. This is just round one. We're not finished. While you're walking on this planet, I'll be watching and I will be back. I'll be back to convince you to choose to opt for the ways of the kingdoms of this world. Early on, Jesus was offered what to some extent we all want, but he refused it. Because Jesus had not come to take over. Jesus had come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus has not come to lord over. Jesus had come to get up under the burden of mankind. At the end of his time, and we won't officially get to this for a number of weeks, but let me just give you another sneak preview. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And as many times as he had uh, modeled this, uh, his followers like us, uh, they, they still can't get it. They, they can't grasp it. Jesus, we know how the world works, right? Jesus, you're a great teacher. First. But we know how authority works. We've seen it all of our lives. It's just the way of things. And at the very end, they still hadn't been able to wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus had come to introduce a brand new way of living a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a brand new relationship with God. So he sits them all down and he explains. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Guys, I'm serious. We're not going to go the, the way of the kingdoms of this world. The me first, in it for me, what can I get out of it? I know it's all you've seen. I know it's, it's, it's the way the world works for now. I know that you've never seen another plan, but I'm telling you, I'm not backing down. This is why I have come, and I'm going to stay on this course all the way to the very end. And here's why this is important to you, regardless of your religious belief or your unbelief or your background. Do you know what Jesus valued more than the kingdoms of the world? He valued you. Because you are part of this many that he came to ransom his life for you. Because regardless of how much power you have, you don't have the power to overcome the consequence of sin in your life. He came to ransom you because regardless of how much money you have, you don't have, there is no amount of money that is enough to fix a broken relationship with someone that you love. No amount of influence can reverse the consequences of sin. The kingdoms of this world, the values of this world, they don't even intersect in any kind of meaningful way with the things that are most important to the human heart. And so he came to be a ransom for many. And regardless of what you believe and regardless of what you've been taught, you are part of that many. And do you know what hung in the balance of Jesus' decision to resist the temptation to give in to the ways of the kingdoms of this world? You hung in the balance. And do you know what hangs in the balance of your decision not to embrace the kingdoms of this world? You hang in that balance too. And you already know this. Here's how you know it. Because when you live your life for you, you just get smaller, don't you? And when life is all about you, it's not much of a life. And the reason that I'm tempted and the reason that you're tempted every single day of our lives to do it all for us, the power is for me, the wealth is for me, the influence is for me, how do I get more, more, more so that I can make my life better, better, better? It's all we've seen. It's all we know. But in the end, we also know that we're smaller. And Jesus said, that's why I've come. I've come that you might have life. And when it's all about you, it's not much of a life. The reason that Jesus is central um, all over the world, still to this day, is that he did not opt for the kingdoms of this world. This is how he said it to us. Well, questions. He loved questions. And again, regardless of what you think about Jesus, this is the question that we all have to wrestle to the ground. This is the question that Jesus came to address. This is the issue that kept him marching on and on all the way to the cross. So just be honest and answer yourself. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Selfishness 
in the end, at the end of the day, it leads you to a loss of the very thing that you were trying to save yourself. And here's how you know this, because the people you have, who have the biggest lives and the people who make the biggest difference are the people that, and the people that you admire the most are the most selfless. And we rarely get to see it done well. We get moments. And Jesus said, I've come to establish a kingdom that's all about that. So in this new upside-down kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And power will be leveraged for the powerless. And wealth will be leveraged for those in need. And influence would be leveraged for those without a voice. But this would not sit well with the powerful and with the wealthy and the influential. And here's why. And this is where some of you are right now, even as I'm speaking. We naturally resist what we can't control and don't understand. And so temple and empire would conspire together to crush him. But in the end, they would be outmaneuvered. Kind Father, thank you for the example that you shared with us through Jesus. A life and a world and a way and a kingdom that is different. A kingdom that can sound scary to to enter, but boy, would it be a great place to be in. And so as we deal, as we struggle right now, even with our selfishness about what I want and what about me, and that doesn't sound wise, and that's just not the way things work, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would calm our hearts and that you would speak to us and then, please, speak through us that we might be used somewhere today to bring a message of hope, peace, grace to someone who's in need. And as you continue to work through us, God, may we sense your presence and long for more of your spirit that would bring us further into this kingdom that's so upside down. Give us a love for that that we can't control. Give us a love for the people that are around us. Help us to see the way that you are and long to be the same way ourselves, to earnestly pursue you. Jesus, use someone else to speak to me if that's what I need also. I'm looking forward to hearing how you will speak into my life. And I'm looking forward to how you will speak into the lives of my friends here today as well. Keep us in pursuit. Keep our eyes up on you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.